tonight, tonight we are looking at the last night of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, his last night with his disciples. And on this last night, he chose to wash their feet, to eat with them, to even endure betrayal. And through it all, he loved them to the end. In the 13th chapter of John's gospel, we read his account of these events. It was evening and the hour had come for Jesus to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, our Lord, removed his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. For Jesus to take off his clothing would mean that he is removing the clothing that points to his earthly authority the clothing that identifies him as rabbi, as teacher, as Lord, the clothing that gave him authority. He removed those clothes and put on the clothing of a servant by wrapping a towel around his waist. A change of clothes, a single act broke the social order. Rabbis did not dress like servants. Rabbis did not take off their outer clothing, and rabbis did not stoop down to wash the feet of their disciples. Who would do such a thing? In John's account later, it says that after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. And now this is strange. This is strange. This is not how things were done. A servant was supposed to come in and wash their feet. At the very least, one of the disciples should have gone and washed their rabbi's feet. And in Luke's account, if you read Luke's account, he tells us that just after the meal, before this act, the disciples are arguing among themselves. They're arguing about who was greater, who was more important. So none of them are thinking about washing the other one's feet. None of them are wanting to take the posture of a servant. The social order of their day said that they were not really responsible for their brother's care. So just think for a moment with me what this must have been like. The disciples and Jesus are gathered around this table. After walking all day, they're gathered at this table, and Jesus is probably contemplating what's to come, processing the, the road that he's about to walk. All of them are tired. All of them are full from the meal that they have just eaten. The disciples are boisterous, and they're arguing. And then Jesus stands up, 
takes off his outer clothing, and he stoops down and he picks up their feet one by one to wash them, to make them clean. And then Jesus approaches Peter and Peter rejects him, right? Peter has the response that we would all have. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? No, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus's response is simple. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus must do this. This, this is the way. And so then Jesus gets up from the floor and he puts on his clothes and he returns to his place and he turns to the disciples and he says, do you understand what I have done for you? And they don't, they don't understand. No one does. Even in this room on this night, as we sit here listening to this familiar story, I don't really think that we understand what's really happening here. And so Jesus goes on to say that, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus took the position of a servant. He stooped down to wash his disciples' feet, to make them clean, and to model for them humility. Humility. If you think about this long enough, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about Jesus performing this act. And to paint a picture, Jesus paints for them a picture that they didn't quite understand of what it looks like for the God of the universe to come down to earth, to stoop down, humbling himself so much so that in just a few short hours, he's going to suffer torture and ridicule on our behalf when he goes to the cross. And so what does it mean to be humble? Rick Warren says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And, and Jesus is definitely not thinking of himself. He's not stooping down in annoyance. He's not um, upset and bitter that he has to wash his disciples' feet. No, he's thinking of them. Like a good father and a good teacher, he is thinking about what they will need for the road ahead. And they would need to know how to live with humility. And so in this simple, ordinary act, he unlocks for them a new core memory. A memory that would carry them forward. A memory of clothing laid to the side. A memory of a towel wrapped around their rabbi's waist. A memory of the feeling of his hands on their feet, washing them, drying them with a towel, and then placing them back in their sandals. Later in John chapter 13, just before Jesus is betrayed, he says to them, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He gives them this new command, born out of this act of service to love one another. And to love someone, to really love someone requires humility. It's a call to take off our outer garment and set aside our preferences, our rights, our comforts, our positions of authority, and to stoop down in service to the people around us. What would it take for you to take off your outer garment and love like Jesus? What would it mean for you to stop arguing about who is the greatest, who is first, who deserves recognition, and submit yourself to Jesus? What would it look like for you to love someone else to the end, and not just your spouse or your best friend, but even the person that's hard to love? Where in your own life do you need to stoop down and wash someone else's feet? In one of his last acts before his crucifixion, Jesus decides to model for his disciples, for those who would love him and for those who would betray him, what it means to live in humility and to serve one another. Who, who would do such a thing? Jesus, the one who loves us to the end. Please continue with us in worship. I wonder, what did you have for dinner last night? Who'd you have it with? What conversation did you share? Food and people and conversation, these are the elements that make up any good dinner. And about 2,000 years ago on this Holy Thursday, Jesus had dinner. And he had it with his disciples. And he shared a conversation with them that would utterly change their understanding of who God was and what he was doing for the sake of the world. You see, on this Holy Week scene, we come to a dinner table, a dinner table where Jesus is changing the paradigm. This table is commonly referred to as the Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci has a famous painting where he centers Jesus in this and rightly so, and it's worth noting because as we'll see, Jesus is the center of this meal. However, on this night, the disciples wouldn't have known it as the Last Supper. They would have known it by another name, Pesach or Passover. The Passover meal was an annual time for Israel to gather and celebrate and remember their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Lord had established this meal and the final plague against the gods of Egypt, against Pharaoh himself, the sobering plague of the death of the firstborn. And he commanded that a spotless and pure lamb be killed or sacrificed as a substitute for the death of the firstborn. By faith, they would kill the lamb and put its blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe. 
By faith, they were to roast the meat of the lamb over the fire and eat it that night with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And for those who did this, who had their homes covered by the blood of the lamb, the plague of death would pass over. And so, on this night, the disciples gather for this meal and Jesus changes everything. Traditionally, the Passover meal was a explanation and dialogue rooted out of Exodus 12 where this meal was established. It was structured around four different cups of wine corresponding to four promises that God made to Israel in Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Cup number one, the cup of sanctification where God promised to bring them out from the burden of the Egyptians. Cup number two, the cup of deliverance where God made a promise saying, I will deliver you from slavery in Egypt. Cup number three, the cup of redemption, where God made a promise, I will redeem you with a mighty act of judgment and outstretched arm. Sanctification, deliverance, and redemption, all leading to cup number four, the cup of praise where God made a promise, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. This dinner, this meal, this was Passover. But in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says this to his disciples. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And the Greek, eagerly desired, is the same word for a noun and verb. I have desired, with desire, to eat this meal with you. Note the time reference in this. Before I suffer, I wanna eat this Passover. Before that moment on the cross, I want this moment around the table. Now, why would Jesus want this? What made this Passover to Jesus significant? I mean, for Jesus and the disciples, just the year prior, they had Passover and the year before that. To the disciples, Passover was as commonplace as, as like our Thanksgiving or Christmas just this past year. And we know this by the style of conversation that they were having. Who's the greatest? Jockeying for position and power. Peter, upon hearing Jesus mention that he had to suffer again, wants to show Jesus his courage. I'll never disown you, Jesus. And then Judas, I imagine him leaning back with bitterness in his heart as he planned to betray, betray him. Sounds like any other funky family table to me. You've got pride and denial, bitterness, even betrayal. Very common. But to Jesus, this was not common. His eager desire to share this Passover meal was for a purpose. This Passover, it was novel. It was holy. It was as transformative as it could possibly be. You see, around the second and third cup, the table host would speak to the table guests in the explanation and dialogue. In a family setting, the son would ask his father, his Abba, the question from Exodus 12. What does this ceremony mean, Abba? And the father would respond, this is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. And so here are the disciples gathered at this meal and Jesus is just about to surprise them with words they couldn't even anticipate at the moment that they were so used to hearing the same call and response at this moment Jesus changes everything 
In Luke 22, it says this, that Jesus got bread and upon giving thanks broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, at this point in the meal, any disciple at the table could have raised their hand and interjected, maybe sheepishly, Jesus, what do you, what do you mean? Cup two and three, this is deliverance and redemption. This is the part about the lamb and the door and the plague and deliverance. What, what are you saying? At the very moment that they expected Jesus to reference the great story of old, Jesus is reframing and centering the whole story in himself. He's offering a whole new paradigm for understanding this meal. Effectively, Jesus is saying, you've understood this cup and this bread and this meal to represent that deliverance from slavery in Egypt. But now, I tell you that this bread is my body, that this cup is my blood, that this deliverance is not deliverance from slavery in Egypt, it's deliverance from that which enslaves your very soul, deliverance from sin and death. I am the sacrificial lamb who will suffer and die for the sin of the world. This bread and this cup. At this point, the disciples they're silenced. They don't know what to say. Likely disoriented that Jesus would say these words. Effectively, Jesus is saying, this right here, this meal now, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, for this is me for you. This bread is my body for you. This cup is my blood for you. This is my condemnation for your salvation. This is my suffering for your healing. This is my sacrifice for your forgiveness. This is my pain for your peace. This is my righteousness for your unrighteousness. This is my death for your life. This is me for you. Take, eat, drink. This is me for you. Who would do such a thing? Who would eagerly desire to share this meal before immense suffering? Who would do such a thing? Especially with what we, like those disciples, bring to this table. Jesus brought to this table his very self-giving love. All we bring to this table is our weakness and our sin. Like the disciples, we want to give Jesus our best credentials, get noticed by God, but instead we end up abandoning him in his greatest point of need. Like Peter, we want to bring our own cleanliness and courage, but instead we end up denying and disowning Jesus. Like Judas, we want to bring devotion, but instead we end up betraying. Who would do such a thing? Who would sacrifice himself for sinners like you and me? Only Jesus. 
Only Jesus. But the question now is why? Why would Jesus do this? And the text tells us, John 13, one. Now Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. And having loved his disciples who were in the world, he loved them to the end, unto death. Jesus gave us his life because of his love. John would later write, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atonement for sin. Who would do such a thing? By giving us this bread and this cup, his very self, Jesus calls us to participate in his death by receiving his sustaining life. You see, there's only one true cup of salvation. There's only one true bread of life. There's only one lamb of God. There's only one true sacrifice for sin once and for all. It's Jesus. This is me for you. And as we come to the table this evening, may we remember the mystery and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we receive the mystery of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood. For as one scholar put it, mystery is not the lack of meaning. Mystery is more meaning than we could ever comprehend. One true one true bread, one true sacrifice. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Who would do such a thing? Only Jesus, only Jesus, the one who loves us to the end. And so tonight, we're the people, this is the meal, this is the conversation. Jesus for us. And we have a time tonight to receive this beautiful mystery. Remember this great sacrifice. As you'll see, we have five tables here at the front. And after a time of prayer and reflection, you are uh, invited to come and receive. We'll have pastors and deacons who are eager like Jesus to serve the elements. And as you're ready, come down and receive the body and blood, the bread and the cup. If needed or desired, this far table over here with the cloth is gluten-free. But tonight, this is our time to meet with our Savior at the dinner table, to partake and participate in his meal. So if you would pray with me and those who are going to serve the elements, come to the tables. Let's take a moment to quiet ourselves, quiet our hearts before our Lord in the presence of God. Lord Jesus, here on this holy Thursday, here around this table,
to which we only bring weakness and sin. You brought your love. You brought yourself. And so God, as we examine our heart, as we surrender our life, as we by faith receive the mystery of your body and blood, of your one true sacrifice, would you meet us here with your sustaining life? For it is in your name that we pray, Lord Christ. Amen. Judas was there. And he had already determined in his heart what it was that he was going to do. And so he found the events of this particular evening a little bit perplexing. Maybe it was the moment where Jesus knelt down to wash his feet, that he remembered that time where his rabbi had called him by name and said, Judas, follow me. Or maybe he remembered that time not that long ago where Jesus had sent him out, given him power and said, go cast out demons, heal the sick and preach that the kingdom of God is near. Or maybe it was when they shared this meal together that he remembered the time where he saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Or the time where Jesus calmed the storm when he thought that the boat was gonna sink in those treacherous waters. Judas was there for all of these events. And Judas was there for this particular evening participating in all the events that transpired, having his feet washed by Jesus and sharing in this unique Passover meal. Now, Judas knew that Jesus was a lot of things, but blind was certainly not one of them. So he knew what Jesus meant when he said, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Judas knew that Jesus was aware of his plan to betray him. So why did Jesus kneel down and wash the feet of his betrayer? Who would do such a thing? Judas knew what Jesus meant when he said, truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. So why did Jesus share this holy meal with him? Who would do such a thing? Now, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirits when he made this announcement concerning his betrayal, that he was deeply concerned. And he told his disciples, the one who shared my bread has turned against me. The one who has shared this fellowship meal with me that signifies the provision and the love and the covenant of God has turned his back on me. And so they, the disciples began to ask all kinds of questions. They began to talk amongst one another and, and Peter and John converse and, and John leans over to Jesus and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus replies, the one whom I will give the bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And he turns and he hands this morsel of bread dipped in wine, gives it to Judas who's seated at a place of honor at the table. And it was in this moment, this act of kindness, this act of hospitality, this act of love 
that Judas's resolve was steeled and he gave himself over to the father of lies. So Jesus says, what you're about to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves. And not long after, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, a new command I give to you, love one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus uses this moment, this opportunity to teach his disciples this ever important lesson. That if you truly wanna follow me, if you truly wanna be my disciple, then you must reflect this same kind of self-giving extravagant love and extend it even to those who betray you, even to your enemies. In the face of betrayal, in the face of rejection, in the face of death, Jesus chose to love. Who would do such a thing? Jesus loved them to the end. Jesus loved even Judas to the end. And what did that love look like? It looked like uh, Jesus, uh, instead of casting out Judas, inviting him to sit close. Instead of rejecting Judas, it meant like spending his last moments serving him. Instead of denying Judas, it looked like him sharing a holy meal together. Who would do such a thing? In the words of N.T. Wright, there is nothing that love could do for him that Jesus did not do. And so in this moment, Jesus' love looks like allowing Judas to pursue that which he ultimately desired, even if it led to his destruction. Jesus didn't force Judas to love him in return. He didn't twist his arm or, or coerce or demand love. And so Jesus' love in this moment looked like allowing Judas to pursue that which he loved most, even if it wasn't him, and even if it led to his destruction. So friends, while God can and certainly will use our brokenness to bring about his ultimate purposes, we ought to carefully consider what it is that we love most, because God might just let us pursue it. Scripture teaches that God's kindness, that God's love is intended to lead us to repentance. That, that God is patient towards you, not desiring that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. The worst thing for us is that we choose to love something more than Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit of Judas in each of us a, a, a Judas-like desire for self instead of a Christ-like desire for others. A Judas-like uh, posture of pride instead of a Christ-like posture of humility. A Judas-like heart drawn towards power and control instead of a Christ-like heart drawn towards sacrifice and service. Jesus will not force you to love him. And he may just let you run after what it is that you desire most. So what do you love most? 
in his final moments with this understanding of what lay ahead of him. Betrayal, rejection, and crucifixion. Jesus chose to give, he chose to love, and he chose to serve. Who would do such a thing? Jesus would, the one who loves us to the end.